Thank you, David. Well, bless you. <laughs> We're um, taking some larger chunks of, of Luke's gospel as we move forward over the next few weeks. And it's good just to read the gospel together as uh, we continue to look at this series on foundations. So let me just pray as uh, we get into this part of God's word. Loving Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts and our minds and our wills and reveal to us, Lord, the state of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder where you're going on your summer holidays. Have you planned your summer holidays yet? Uh, don't quite know what is possible still, do we? But one of the joys of traveling around the country is you get to see all sorts of interesting buildings. And a few months ago, we had a, a day out in Edinburgh, where standing proud over the city is this impressive castle built on solid rock. That's an unusually sunny day, I think, in Edinburgh. It stood there for hundreds of years. But in contrast, a couple of years ago, we were having a day out on the Norfolk Broads and uh, pottering on a little boat, and we came across this house. Yes. Uh, its wooden foundations had rotted away, and the house had started to tipple over one night after the owners had lived there for 17 years. And I love this next sign, next picture. These two buildings are great examples of Jesus' parable about the wise and foolish man. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. There's our verse for 2022. And everyone who hears Jesus' words and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish person who built their house on the sand. When the rains fall and the floods rose, the house on the sand fell flat. And Jesus' point is that if you want to build your life on firm foundations, morally and uh, uh, I suppose uh, philosophically and in all sorts of ways, rather than trusting in the shifting sands of public opinion or the fragility of our own self-esteem, we should build our lives by putting into practice what he has taught, words which never change, words which are as solid as a rock. And over the last uh, few weeks, we've seen how, having called the 12 disciples, Jesus has been taking us through, taking them through this crash foundations course. We looked first at attitudes, uh, the beatitudes. If we hunger for the things of God, if we weep over what is evil in our world and over the evil in our own hearts, if we stand with Jesus when the world rejects him, then we will know God's blessing in this world and the next. And then last week, we looked at our actions and Jesus' golden rule to do to others as you would have them do to you, even though they are your enemies. And now this morning, the focus is on affirmations, when how people responded to Jesus in different ways. Some believed, others were unsure, and still others turned their backs on him. And the big surprise we're going to find in Luke chapter 7, is that those you don't expect to believe do, and those you do expect to believe don't, or at least are unsure. So if we're a believer here this morning, or someone who say, I'm not quite sure, or even someone who says, I don't yet believe, well, we're all addressed in this section of Luke's gospel. 
And if you do believe and got friends and members of your family who are unsure, then this is a great passage to have in our minds when talking with them, or even to share with them if the opportunity arises. So let's begin with verses 1 to 17 and our first affirmation. The person who says, I believe in Jesus. Have a look at verse 9. I tell you, says Jesus of the centurion, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That's how Jesus describes the faith of this non-Jewish soldier, someone whom you would not have expected to believe in Jesus due to their nationality, due to their spiritual upbringing as a worshipper of pagan gods, turns out to have such a great faith in Jesus that it puts everyone else, all the Israelites Jesus has met so far, in the shade. It's an encouragement that whatever our background, whatever we, uh, how we were brought up, it doesn't have to be a barrier to belief in Jesus Christ. If we've been brought up in a non-Christian home, nurtured in a different religion, raised in a different culture, we too can become like the centurion, examples of great faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So let's think more about this centurion's faith. When the elders of Capernaum come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, they sing his praises, how this man has loved, loved their nation, how he's even helped to build their synagogue. Such kindness must have marked the centurion out as very different from the others who held his rank, the equivalent of a major in the armed forces today. Or it seems he had in his heart begun to turn away from the many gods and goddesses of the Roman religion to the one God of Israel. And this kindness was also seen his concern for his servant's health, someone who he highly valued. The servant's strength had been ebbing away. Death was knocking at the door. And touched by the elder's request on behalf of this centurion, Jesus agrees to visit his house and help his servant. But the centurion has been reflecting on what he's heard about Jesus, and he's been thinking a bit more. And so he sends friends with another message to Jesus. Lord, says the message, actually, <laughs> Don't bother about coming in person. You're too important, and I'm too unimportant for you to do that. Instead, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. As a man with men under his authority, he understands how authority works. He gives the order to go, and off the soldier goes to fulfill the order. He gives the order to come, and the soldier comes to him. And he sees in Jesus the same sort of authority only on a far, far higher level. Here is someone who doesn't even need to be present to heal the centurion's servant. Here is someone who has the authority to cast out sickness and make people whole. The authority of the one who created life and knows how to recreate it, for whom there is no limit to what he can do and where he can do it, who can restore the dying to health, and raise to life those who have already died, as he does with the son of the widow of Nain in the next section. The townsfolk of the town of Nain call Jesus a great prophet, but it's the centurion who acknowledges that he is so much more. He is not merely a mouthpiece for the Almighty. In Jesus dwells the authority and power of the living God. 
And he is the one whose faith Jesus commends. And this morning, it's a challenge to us. Sort of, what's the level of our faith? Have we got centurion-level faith? I was reminded of another unlikely believer in Christ, someone uh, who's died now called Chuck Colson. He was one of the lawyers working for President Nixon, the, the President of the United States, who got caught up in the Watergate scandal, if you can remember that. And he was known as President Nixon's hatchet man at the time, a ruthless operator in Washington. He enjoyed the thrill of being at the center of power, and it led him obstructing the investigation to do with the, the Watergate scandal. I can't remember all the details now. But he got caught, and it led to a spell in prison. And in between the breaking of the scandal in the news and his trial, a Christian friend encouraged Colson by, to read a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Perhaps you've read it. And as he read the book and uh, talked with his friend, he, he went away uh, to realize he had to make a decision. And he describes the moments that he turned to Christ in belief in his book, Born Again. It's a great read. Do, do get it. He, did, he went away to a seaside cottage to think. And this is how he described his moment of belief. I knew the time had come for me. I could not sidestep the central question Lewis or God had placed squarely before me. Was I to accept without reservations Jesus Christ as, my, as Lord of my life? It was like a gate before me. There was no way to walk around it. I would step through or I would remain outside. And maybe, or oh, I need more time, was kidding myself. Did I believe what Jesus said? If I did, if I took it on faith or reason or both, then I accepted. And while I sat alone staring at the sea I love, Words I had not been certain I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. Well, I think Colson describes very powerfully what is involved in saying, I believe in Jesus. Many of us will have taken that step, and yet our faith is still weak. We don't yet share this centurion's faith that Jesus can and will answer our prayers. And this morning, perhaps, will be a good moment to take that next step of faith and trust in Jesus, to say, I believe, like the centurion believed, that Jesus has authority over my life and over my death, over the life and health and death of all around me. Luke, uh, in this uh, passage, reams off miracle after miracle that Jesus did to show the unlimited nature of his authority and power, an authority and power which will raise us one day from death to everlasting life, an authority and power that is at work in the world today still, which is why I think even though we cannot stay in these mortal and frail bodies forever, that we will all need to die at some point to enjoy new resurrection bodies, and that that is the great miracle that Jesus promises to work in all our lives, I think it is still good, like the centurion, for those who are believers to bring those we know and love who are sick to the Lord in prayer, to ask him to work his grace and healing in their minds and spirits and even their bodies, and then to leave the matter in his hands.
whether the healing will be now or in the future. But it is good, isn't it? To, to, and it would be wonderful to see the Lord answer prayers like that in our midst. We are in, to place our hands in the hands of one that we read whose heart went out to the widow of Nain in her grief. To tell Jesus, I believe in you for this life and the next, for myself and for those that I love. Well, that's our first affirmation this morning. I believe in Jesus. And then there are those who, instead of saying, I believe in Jesus, can only affirm, you know, I'm not sure. And if that's you this morning, that, that's, that's an okay place to be. But let's look at how Jesus helps them and helps us to believe. That's our second point. I'm not sure. And have a look at verse 18 with me, on the back of your service sheets. So having heard about this news in verse 17 of these miracles that Jesus is doing, spreading throughout Judea and the surrounding country, uh, it, John the Baptist picks it up. And in verse 18, we read that John's disciples um, uh, were told about all these things. And calling two of them, John sends them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, well, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, well, it's the same question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you the one? Well, that's the question to which John the Baptist wants to know the answer. Jesus, are you the one I've been preparing the way for? And just like it was surprising to find someone like the centurion who you would have expected not to believe believing, here we have John, who one would have thought would be a fully signed up believer in Jesus, actually still looking for some reassurance. Jesus isn't perhaps quite what John was expecting. He preached, he expected the one to come to preach a baptism of, of fire and of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps he hasn't cut seen enough of this fire that he was expecting from Jesus. And so John is confused, or at least uncertain. And perhaps we would put ourselves in that same category. We've been around church for a long time. Everyone probably thinks we're a believer, but actually we're still unsure in our beliefs. And we need some help to get over the line to get our heads around what Jesus is really like in contrast to what we think he should be like. So how does Jesus answer their question? Well, it's by providing them with evidence. He gives John's disciples time to watch what he is doing. They see him healing diseases, casting out evil spirits, giving sight to the blind. Evidence, you see, is the best thing that Jesus can give them to deal with their doubts. He says, look at me, see what I have been doing. That will help reassure us if we need reassuring. Who else has done such things and on a, such a great scale? Look at the evidence, says Jesus. No one compares to me. But it's also a rather special kind of evidence. This is evidence which fulfills a prophecy that was first spoken of hundreds of years before. The prophet Isaiah declared, on the great day of salvation, when God himself comes in all his glory, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy, Isaiah 35. 
And Jesus picks up on this prophecy and tells John's disciples to go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. And he repeats Isaiah here. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So this evidence that Jesus provides has, if you like, a double value, a double weight. In and of itself, the miracles point to Jesus as the one, as a one of a kind never seen before on earth, nor, of course, since. And the way these miracles also fulfill prophecy point to Jesus being the one. This double evidence, double helping of evidence, Jesus sends these disciples of John away to reassure John that he is indeed the one for whom John can put his faith in. There should be no reason, says Jesus, that this evidence that they have should cause them to stumble, cause John to stumble in his faith. I hope that reassures you this morning that here is the evidence that we need. You might perhaps think, and I often thought, well, actually, I want more evidence. I'd like my own personal miracle. But actually, that's to test God. And actually, Jesus says this evidence is enough for us to answer the question, is he the one? Is he the one in whom you and I should believe? Is it in the, in the miracles he's performed in the fulfillment of prophecy? Actually, we have enough evidence upon which to believe in him. As a lawyer, Chuck Colson had taken the time to look at the evidence his Christian friends had pointed him to. And perhaps if we're Christians, we need to point our friends to evidence that they can find. You need to read the Gospel of Luke. You can take away a Gospel of Luke uh, from the welcome desk and perhaps give it to a friend who's searching. But as a lawyer, Colson felt, and as a son of a lawyer, and as a trainee lawyer that I became, and a lawyer, that um, you feel the compelling power of this evidence. And this is how he describes the impact of saying, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. With these few words, he said, as he looked out on the sea churning before him, came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of feeling in my heart. There came something more, strength and serenity, a wonderful new assurance about life, a fresh perception of myself and the world around me. In the process, I felt old fears, tensions and animosities draining away. I was coming alive to things I'd never seen before, as if God was filling the barren void I'd known for so many months, filling it to the brim with a whole new kind of awareness. It's a wonderful description of that moment of putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And it transformed Chuck Colson's life. He spent some time in prison for his uh, crime and so moved by he was of his experience in prison that he launched something called the Prison Fellowship, which became this international Christian ministry for people who are in prison and for those looking after people who come out of prison. It's a wonderful work that uh, some people here at St. Mary's are involved with as well here with a local prison over in Bovingdon. But I think Chuck Colson's words make sense of Jesus' comparison, if you notice it, of how a believer in him, even the least in his kingdom, will have a richer, deeper experience of spiritual realities than John the Baptist ever did because of they know and follow and experience the work of Jesus in their lives. 
And I can remember, like Chuck Colson, thinking at the age of 16, can I put off this decision? Can I delay following Christ? And yet being aware of the danger to my soul of coming before God as saying, I hadn't believed, I'd rejected you. It sort of niggled away at me. And we see, actually, in this passage, those who were rejecting Jesus, these Pharisees and experts of the law in verse 30. We're told they refused the baptism of, of John, by which Luke means that they refused to repent and believe. They were full of pride and self-sufficiency. They didn't need Jesus. But to do that is to reject God's purpose for their lives and for ours. And that would be a, what a waste of life to reject the very purpose for which we were created. So saying to Jesus, Lord, I believe in you, then I think are the most important words we can ever utter. They provide the bedrock for our life, the solid foundation upon which the rest of life is built. To live by our own compass, by society's moral compass, is to build our life on sand. One minute we're meant to do one thing, the next minute we're meant to do another As Jesus himself puts it when he describes his own generation, they are like children, verse 32, sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. They changed their mind the whole time. And so they rebuke John the Baptist for being too serious and they rebuke Jesus for being not serious enough. But if we hitch our cart to circular philosophies, And you you may not notice the difference straight away, like with that house on the Norfolk Broads when the owners bought it. But at some point down the line, after you've invested hundreds of thousands of pounds, you realize that the house you've built your life on is sinking sand. But to believe in Jesus, on the other hand, is to embark on a great adventure. And the centurion reminds us that there are no limits to Jesus' power. He does not need to be present in the flesh to change the course of a man or woman's life. He has authority to raise the dead, and all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. To build your life on him is to build your life on solid rock. So let's be still for a moment and just think quietly, how has the Holy Spirit spoken to your heart this morning from his word? And where does your faith and mine need to grow. Let's just be still for a moment. I think, ask the Lord, Lord, how do I need to grow and change in response to your word this morning? Lord Jesus, would you grow our faith and trust in you? May, as you said of the centurion, may we have great faith. We ask it in your name. Amen.